This is Grace Talks, a production of Simpson United Methodist Church in Bangor, Michigan. Our scripture reading today is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 4b to 14. If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, become like him in death, and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which Jesus has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, God, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Two months to the day before his assassination, Martin Luther King Jr. delivered a sermon entitled The Drum Major Instinct to a congregation that was gathered at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. In this speech, he proposed that many of the issues we face, especially as Americans, stems from this drum major instinct, this instinct to, as he put it, always be first, to be the center of attention, the one banging the drum, to always be ahead or at least in line with the Joneses. This is no more true than in the current structuring of our economy as it stands in the United States and throughout seemingly the world at large. The economy so often isn't based on human flourishing, not on the valuing of the environment, rather it's based on gaining as much as possible as quickly as possible. As much money, as much property, as much stuff as possible to heck with the consequences. We seem to exist in this state of what might be called or referred to as line-goes-up economy, where the entire focus is built on this idea of endless growth, that all things must produce profit or be cast aside. 
all things must produce and increase profit to the point that even people, the environment, human health, and flourishing can be sacrificed. We see this today as inflation is at a 40-year high despite the fact that the companies raising their prices are recording record profits. People in the face of profits are of little concern. The question that we must always be asking ourselves is who or what are we living for? Do we live for stuff or do we live for people? Do we live for God? We live for people, right? We live for the well-being of our neighbors. While we've never seen a U-Haul on the back of a hearse, we still see people mindlessly accumulating money even up to the point of their death. In the end, we can't bring our stuff with us, and yet we still see this blind fixation with gathering up as much as we, ca as much as we possibly can when we've gone even past the point of ever being able to spend it. It's this display of foolishness that it seems that not only have we as a culture by and large bought into, but we see it celebrated. As one person put it, if a monkey hoarded more bananas than it could eat, while most of the other monkeys starved, scientists would study that monkey to figure out what the heck was wrong with it. But when humans do it, we put them on the cover of Forbes. It seems evident that this was not Jesus' intention for us. This was not the goal. Rather, the intention has always been for human flourishing, for the good shepherd comes that we may have life and have it abundantly, that we may have it at its fullest. When it comes to Jesus' teachings, it might surprise you to know that Jesus spoke on the topic of money or used money as an example more than almost any other topic. And this is the case because it is one of the unifying features in our world that sits as one of the most common aspects of our lives. It's a thing that we place as the focus to such an extent that we have a difficulty imagining a world without money. But is money the ultimate goal? There's this common image that we find when we turn to the book of Revelation. Yes, I know, the scary book. And that image is what's known as the mark of the beast. In Revelation 13, we're presented with this image of a beast from the sea and a beast from the earth, and the second beast brings with it this mark, which Revelation tells us all people were forced to receive that they could, so that they could not buy or sell without it. Over the centuries, we've seen a lot of takes over what this mark might be. A particularly popular one in recent times is that it's some sort of microchip or something that people will have to take in order to participate in economy. But what if this mark, rather than being a prediction of the future, is instead something we've always been dealing with? When we look at Revelation 13, what we see is that the mark is not the number of a beast, but rather the mark, the number of a man. 
The author of the book of Revelation, through some pretty clever use of numerical values, indicates that this number equals out to 666. And what we find when we do the math, or rather when we allow people who are much more studied in this to do the math, is that this number is shorthand or code for the name and title of Nero Caesar. In the context of the book of Revelation, the mark of the beast is the Roman denarius, the ancient equivalent of the U.S. dollar, a centralized currency that everyone relies on. So when we look to scripture, what we find is that in the end, the thing that divides us most, the thing that we are forced into the worship of is nothing less than money itself. This thing that we put so much time and effort into honoring that we end up creating these entire social systems based around celebrating or mourning how much or how little you have. But in the end, we can't take it with us. Common in Paul's writings and alluded to throughout many of his books and alluded to especially in the passage we read today is the term pressing on to reach the goal. And what we find when we look at another passage is that Paul is referring to is this idea of a winner's crown as though we are pressing on to win a race. While Paul talks about this idea more explicitly in 1 Corinthians 9 in our passage today, he again is alluding to it, saying that the idea of a or the idea of a crown that is perishable is much different than the idea of a crown that is eternal. When we hear of crowns, the image that we might get is of gold or silver, something inlaid with jewels and precious metals. But the crown that Paul was referring to was less metal and jewels and more, well, this. When Paul wrote about winning the race and winning the crown, he was alluding to a crown made of celery, which was the prize of the Isthmian Games, a sort of ancient precursor to the Olympics. In his time, this was one of the highest honors you could receive, and yet in the end, it's quite literally something that's going to rot away. In, quite some, in, in reality, it's something that is really quite meaningless. You can't take it with you. As if to emphasize and to go back to the book of Revelation one more time, the only time we see crowns in the final book of Scripture is when they're being tossed at the feet of Christ. When they're being recognized as being worthless. So if crowns and money are utterly meaningless, if they account to nothing, what do we strive for? Christ, the Christ that is within and among and over and through the Christ who is in all people because in the end, all we have is one another. All we have is the Christ that we meet in other people. 
All we have is the presence of Christ that we find shared amongst ourselves. Now, when it comes to the topic of immortality in heaven, something mentioned in this passage, I don't always have that much to say. And that's not because I don't think it's important. Rather, it's because I think it's so far beyond the pale of what I or any of us can see or experience that I don't try to put much focus on it beyond the basic thought of it's there and it's the thing we hope for. Rather, the question that I instead focus on and that I ask is, what does it mean to, to live as though we are living in the kingdom of God right now? As though we are experiencing eternal life right now rather than in some distant future. And again, that comes down to people. It comes down to those that Christ identifies himself as being among and even one of. It comes down to the least of these. It comes down to the body of Christ. It comes down to all things. As Paul and other epistle writers tell us time and time again, God is all in all. God is above all and through all and in all. And in him we live and move and have our being. God in Christ is present in all things, in all places, in all people. And so to experience the presence of God, to experience eternal life, kingdom living, the beloved community right now, means to live lives that are focused on love, lives that are focused on service, lives that are focused on freedom. To live in such a way that we imitate Paul's hope that he might press on towards the goal that is the heavenly call of God in Jesus Christ to live a life that is free. A life that is not bound up in the fear of death to the point that we forget that we are living for one another Rather, a life lived for one another. The greatest forces of evil in this world rely on one final authority, and that final authority is the one they draw their power from. And that power is not God. That power is death. That power is the, the fear of death. And to clarify, because I don't mean to make this sound scary, what I mean is that it's a focus on death as a power, as a thing that works to influence all areas of the world. There are so many times and places where we see death being felt long before it becomes physical. Places of war, places of poverty, places of suffering. These are foretastes of death as a power of evil that could be contrasted with the foretaste of God's kingdom that we experience in instances of life abundant. What we find when we deny these forces of evil, the fear of death, is that we can ultimately live in ways that extend beyond the arbitrary border boundaries that they set down. When we live in such a way as to put aside the drum major instinct, what we come to find is that death loses its power, this drum major instinct, which is ultimately that fear of death on display, is put aside. And then what happens is we can live lives more focused on that heavenly goal. 
more focused on loving others, more focused on loving God, not for our own elevation or reward, but rather for love itself. There was a time that I wanted to succeed at everything I put my mind to. I wanted to be the hip, cool pastor who got the sexy city church and made a name for himself. I wanted to get a doctorate degree so that I could, I could insist that people call me the Reverend Dr. Corey Simon and be all pretentious. But if this pandemic has done one thing, it's humble me. It's made me realize that I don't need a silly title in front of my name. I don't need the validation of others. I don't need to be the center of attention. I don't need the praise of the denomination or to see my name in print or in lights somewhere. I just need to live and love to the best of my abilities. I need to be content in simplicity. And so while this doesn't mean that I've simply come to accept things as they are without questioning them, it does mean that I've been working to accept that there are things I cannot change. But what I can do is I can work to ensure that the fear of death, the fear of not being first, doesn't hold me back from loving and living as freely as I can. What I've come to realize is that it's no bad thing to celebrate a simple life. And so again, because I've come to this point where I always want to draw it home and draw it back into some feeling of optimism, I have to ask the question of what might it look like to live lives where we are not caught up in the fear of death, the fear of death that is so great that it cripples us and holds us back. What if we lived as though we are not afraid to fail, as though we are not afraid of seeing the death of our institutions? The question is, what might that look like? If the United Methodist Church as an institution was less afraid of dying and less afraid of becoming irrelevant, what could we accomplish? If we here at Simpson United Methodist Church lived in a way that was fully free, that is not caught up in the fear of keeping the lights on, what could we do? And again, that's not to discount keeping the lights on or the doors open. Rather, it's to keep our minds focused on why we're here. Why is it that we remain a church? Why do we continue to gather together Sunday after Sunday and go through the motions week after week? Is it because it's what we've always done? And we're afraid of doing something different or is it because we have hope for what God is doing in our church and in our community? Is it because we are experiencing God's presence here and now among us? Why is this church so focused on being there for its community? Why is this church so focused on things like the blessing box or offering support for young parents through the use of the baby pantry? Why is it this church is so focused on offering our space when we can to senior services or providing new and previously unaccounted for needs like the mask making? 
And I think that's because we recognize that we are only free. We are only serving as Christ has called us to serve. We are only living as Christ has called us to live when we are pressing on towards the prize. When we are living with the fear of death, Captain Shrek. Where we are living with the drum major instinct put on hold. The truth about our situation is that we do not have to be the biggest church in Bangalore. We do not have to be the most central institution in our community. All we have to do is love. All we have to do is serve. All we have to do is be the body of believers united in one another and united in Christ. Amen.